Father, please help us to understand more what it means to live in the new life of the Spirit. That from deep within, in our hearts, we would be transformed more and more into those who love you, serve you, delight in you, and glorify you. For your name's sake. Amen. I guess it must have been back in the 1930s, so the story is told. There was an American family who were going through very hard times and there was no work where they were living. It was the time of the Great Recession, the Depression. And so they travelled across the country to try and find work and they reached a very large city. And this family had never seen such a huge place before. And they stopped off and walked into a hotel. And at this stage, it was just the father and his son. They walked into the hotel lobby. And there was a door. They'd never seen an elevator, a lift before. And uh, a door opened, and this very aged lady in her 80s walked in, hobbled in. And then the door shut. And then not very long later, the door opened, and out walked a stunningly beautiful lady. (laughs) And the man couldn't take his eyes off what he'd just seen, and he said to his son, son, go and get your mother. Many of us are conscious we're getting uh, older. I had my hair cut the other day, and I said to the barber, you sure that's my hair? Because I looked at the hair that was falling to the floor, and there was quite a lot of grey in there. I thought, it couldn't possibly be me. We're getting older. The hair is changing, or in some of our cases, beginning to disappear. There are aches and pains, and we look forward to a new body. And one day, we'll get a new body. Not in this life. One day, we'll get a new body. I think of the the elderly lady, our eldest member. She was 93, and she was hobbling into church one day, and she said to me, you don't know where I can get some new legs, do you? And I said, yes, I do. You'll get them in the new creation. won't be long. And she's now with the Lord. And one day, when the Lord comes back, she'll be raised with a new body. But we can't expect that on earth. And yet there is a miraculous transformation that the Bible says we should expect. We should expect the miraculous transformation of sinful people like you and me being transformed more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This should be real change, and we should expect it. And so I need to ask myself, as I ask you, have we seen real change in our holiness, in our walk with the Lord We should. Now, very often, we're not the best judges. These things happen slowly, and we're conscious of all the ways in which we fail. And so often, I feel I'm getting worse. It helps me to look back. I became a Christian 30 years ago. And I look back 30 years, and I think, yes, in the grace of God, I have changed. Although if I look back the last few weeks, the last few months, it doesn't feel as if I've changed at all. But we should expect change. And if we feel that there's been little progress, and sometimes we go through times in our life when there is little progress, or we seem to be going downhill, could it be that we've been going about it in the wrong way? And Paul in Romans 7 speaks about two ways in which we can approach the Christian life. There's what he calls the old way of the written code. 
and the new way, the new life of the Spirit. And sadly, some of us, even though we're, I hope, born again, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We haven't grasped the full implications of that for our Christian walk, for our Christian life. And instead of living in the new life of the Spirit, we live as if the Spirit hasn't come. And we live according to the old way of the written code. Francis Schaeffer, some of you might have heard of, Schaeffer was a, an amazing uh, man who in the 70s, particularly I suppose the 60s and the 70s, reached many intellectuals from his base with his wife Edith in uh, Switzerland. He went out from America, in fact, in the late 1940s. And it, it was during the 1950s when he was in his late 30s that he had a spiritual crisis. He realized that there was a lack of reality in his walk with the Lord. And it made him re-examine the whole of his Christian faith. Is it really true? Edith, his wife, was very worried as he went for long walks in the Alps, going back to first principles, trying to work out whether he really believed it. Was it really true? And on rainy days, he'd walk up and down and up and down in the hayloft in the home where they lived. Well, gradually, he said, the sun came out and a song returned, and he rediscovered the joy of a vibrant relationship with God. He wrote what he learned in a book later. He said that he'd been living as if God had only given him new birth, but had not given him new life. It's what has sometimes been called the kidney donor card view of the Christian life. I don't know if you have a kidney donor card here in uh, Malaysia. But you, certainly in the UK, you can say, yes, we, we, I'm prepared to donate my kidney to uh, the health profession if I die in a car accident or something. And you might have a card in your wallet, your purse. It's just there, and it says, I, I'm happy to donate my kidney to medics if I die. And then it just stays there. I mean, it's not useful in life. You can't pay for your meal with a kidney donor card. It's, it's just sitting there. But when you die, it is then potentially useful. And some people have a kind of kidney donor card view of the Christian life. I've got my certificate of justification. I put my trust in Jesus Christ, and so I am in the right with God. And that's very useful. It, I put it in my wallet, and I'm looking forward to the day when I approach God as my judge on judgment day, and after death I can then take it out and I present my certificate of justification. It doesn't change my life in the meantime, but it's very useful at death. And Schaefer said that he'd been living the Christian life in that kind of way, as if he'd been given a new birth, but not a new life. It didn't make any difference to the way he was living his life. Yes, he'd been justified, but then it was as if he was being pointed simply to a set of standards, like the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Or certainly in our church, I don't know if they're in the cathedral here, Ten Commandments at the front of the church. And then it was as if he was just pointed to something outside himself and said, right, now you're a Christian, get on and do that. As if he was left to his own resources. And he found he couldn't do it. That's the old way of the written code. We too often live as if justification depends entirely. Justification, by the way, in case you're not clear, 
the declaration that I'm in the right with God because Jesus Christ took my penalty on the cross. And we can live as if justification depends entirely on God. We recognize that. I can't make myself right with God. Justification depends entirely on God and what he's done for me in Christ by the Spirit as he applies this gift to me. But then we can live as if sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, depends entirely on me and what I do by my own effort as I apply these rules and regulations that are external to me. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because... I'm too sinful. So just occasionally, it leads to pride, as I think I've ticked one of those laws. More often, it leads to despair. I'm not getting anywhere. And it may be that some of you come to this day feeling a certain amount of despair in the Christian life. It's not obvious to other people. But you feel as if you're getting nowhere. And in all sorts of ways, in at home or in the secret places of your hearts or your life, you feel as if you're going backwards. And you begin to give up. Well, it could be that someone would want to say to you at this point, you can do it, you can do it. There's a can-do attitude in much of the world, and we can apply that to the Christian life. I think of one uh, friend of mine who's a Scotsman serving uh, the Lord in America. And he went to an American football match once. And there were the, the cheerleaders, all dressed up with their pom-poms, and they were singing the chant, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. The team they were cheering for was getting further and further behind. There was about a minute left, and they were miles behind, and the cheerleaders were still saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. And I would have said, you can't do it. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't, you can't. If you think in yourselves that you can live the Christian life, then you'll either become proud or you'll give up and get despairing because the power is not in us. But, praise God, with God's help, real change is possible. I put down on the sheets, have you repented of your efforts to improve yourself? That's we've begun to believe the lie. You can do it, you can do it. With just a bit more strength and resolution, I can do it. I can't do it. Not by myself. And so progress in our spiritual walk and in the life of holiness begins with the recognition that I cannot do it by myself. And once I recognize that, then there's hope. Because not only is Christian conversion supernatural, I can't be right with God except by Jesus Christ dying for me and then the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to realize that truth. Not only is Christian conversion supernatural, but Christian living is supernatural. Romans 1 to 5 make the point that Christian conversion is supernatural. Romans 6 to 8 make the point that Christian living is supernatural. God has not only given us a new birth, he's given us a new life. Francis Schaeffer said this, if I try to live the Christian life in my own strength, it just leads to sorrow. But I don't need to. Because we've been given all the resources to live the Christian life in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is not saying to us, 
Become what you're not. That's rather like telling a horse to canter on its hind legs and then hitting it because it doesn't do it. And I, I can't actually live a, a godly life by myself. It's like telling a horse to canter on its hind legs. What God is saying to us in Christ is not become what you're not, but rather be what you are. We've been given a new nature through union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And holiness is not firstly my work by my effort. If justification, the state of being in the right with God, is a result of God's work for me, then sanctification, growth in the life of Christ and becoming more like him, is the result of God's work in me. And just as in justification my role is secondary, I'm to respond with faith, so in sanctification my response is secondary. I'm to respond with faith. Here's how Schaefer put it again. The how of the Christian life is the power of the crucified and risen Lord through the agency of the indwelling spirit by faith, moment by moment. That's the new word, the spirit. We're not being simply pointed to a set of standards external to us. It's about living by faith, moment by moment, as we respond to the Holy Spirit, who's written God's law in our hearts. This leads to deep change in heart, which should lead to lasting change in life. The new way of the Spirit involves understanding who we are in Christ and then responding with faith. So we're looking at those two major themes. First of all, understanding who we are in Christ. And there are two elements to this. For a start, we've been united with Christ. Flick back to Romans 6 and verses 3 and 4. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, it's not simply that Christ has done something for me in dying for me on the cross, which is wonderful. He's also done something in me. I've been united to Christ and so just as a branch is connected to the vine, just as a limb is connected to the body, so Christians are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a, a difficult concept. It's the main way in which the Apostle Paul speaks about the Christian. 164 times in Paul's letters he speaks about being in Christ. Some of you just had some tea or coffee. Maybe you added some sugar into your tea or your coffee. And before you added it, you got the coffee over there and you got the sugar over there. But then you add the sugar to the coffee and where's the uh, sugar? It's in the coffee. If you put the coffee on the table, where's the sugar? It's in the coffee on the table. You take the coffee 
and put it on the floor. Where's the sugar? It's in the coffee, on the floor. You drink it. Where's the sugar? It's in the coffee, in your stomach. Or think of the concept of a mother and a baby. If a mother is pregnant, then wherever the mother goes, the baby goes too. Mother goes to Malaysia, the baby's in Malaysia. Mother goes to France and up the Eiffel Tower, the baby's in the mother, up the Eiffel Tower. And we Christians are in Christ. What has happened to him has happened to me. Through union with Christ, we can say, we've been, we died, we've uh, been buried, we've been raised, just as Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And baptism speaks of that. It's a kind of visual aid that, that reminds us of that reality that's happened to all those who are Christian. Some, very often we, we would baptize by sprinkling, whether infants or, or adults. But once a year we, we have a baptism at the river. The River Thames goes through Oxford. And we'll have a baptism in the river. And the person being baptized will go under the water. And uh, that speaks of the fact that they've, they've died. And the, the symbolism really doesn't work if they stay under the water. Because then we lift them up. And sometimes with some of them, we need two of us to lift them up. And now they come again. And they've died. And they've been raised. And they come out symbolizing new life. And Paul speaks of the new life we have in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Been united with Christ. And the life I live, I live by faith. In Christ, the Son of God, who lived, lives for me and died for me, Galatians 2.20. So our conversion is much more than we thought, perhaps. It's a funeral and a birthday rolled into one. The moment I became a Christian, that was kind of my funeral. The old me is finished with. As far as God's concerned, the old me's gone. It's also a birthday. There's a new me. The Christian me. I'm united to Jesus Christ. I'm a completely new person. So it's not just that I've got a new status. I don't just have a, a certificate of justification. I have a new life. I'm bound up with Jesus Christ. I'm in him. And I've also been filled with the Holy Spirit, united with Christ and filled with the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that the life of Christ is mediated to us. The indwelling Holy Spirit gives us new hearts and therefore new desires. Flick on to Romans 8 and verse 5. Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He's talking here about two completely different groups of people with two minds, two different kind of mindsets, we might say. It's synonymous with heart, two different hearts. One, one group, their hearts, their minds are set on the things of the flesh, the old sinful nature. The others, by the Holy Spirit in them, are new people and they've got a new heart which is desiring 
to live to please God. This transformation by the Spirit. Verse 9. You, however, speaking to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, he's not speaking here about two different kinds of Christian. The kind of fleshly Christian and the spiritual Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of those categories. If you're a Christian, you are spiritual. You couldn't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit coming into your hearts and lifting you up to trust in Jesus and want to live to please Jesus. He'd say, that is you. We've been transformed. The law on the wall has become the law in my heart. And so a Christian wants to please God. Now, it doesn't mean to say we can't sin. We'll come on to that. I don't need to tell you. But it does mean that even though we keep on sinning, we are sinners, but we're not happy sinners. Christians are not happy sinners. Which is why some of you come with big burdens today. Because you're conscious of the sin in your heart. And you hate it. And there are patterns of thinking and behavior that you really don't like. You don't want anyone else to know about it, but you, you hate it. You're not happy about it. Non-Christian can be a happy sinner. But a Christian has a new heart, and the new heart means that the Christian wants to live to love God and please God. So if there was a button here that we could press that would guarantee we never sinned again, we'd want to press that button. I don't like sin. I'd I'd love to say I'd never sin again. But tragically, sadly, when I'm faced with the temptation again and again, instead of pressing the button, I do what's wrong. So I've got a new heart, and yet there's conflict because I live in between the ages. There'll be a time when Jesus will come again, and there'll be no sinful nature in me at all. But now in these in-between times, I've got a new nature. The new me wants to live to please Jesus, but there's old desires that keep dragging me down. And Galatians 5 verse 17 puts it that there's this tug of war going on. And that's why you don't do what you want, says Paul. Interesting. I don't do what I want. The assumption is what I really want to do is to live to please Jesus. That's what I want to do. But I keep on doing what's wrong because I have other desires. They're not the deepest desires of my heart. The deepest desires of my heart are to live to please Jesus. But at any, one, any given moment, I can have sinful desires driven by idols. And I do what's wrong. But I'm not happy about it. So there's this battle going on. This conflict. And in the conflict, Paul says, Galatians 5, be led by the Spirit. It's interesting if you read it. It doesn't mean what we sometimes think it means. We sometimes talk about being led by the Spirit in terms of guidance, and the Spirit is, is, is leading me to marry that person or to go and do that job. But when the Bible speaks about being led by the Spirit, it talks about holiness. The law on the wall has become the law in my heart. The Spirit is prompting me, is leading me to do what pleases Jesus. And the Bible tells me what that kind of life looks like. At any moment, by and large, my problem is not guidance. I know what I should do 
to please Jesus, to live the life of holiness. The problem is, is obedience. I often don't do it. And so Paul says, be led by the Spirit. Follow the promptings of your heart directed by the Word to live the godly way. Whereas he puts it elsewhere, keep in step with the Spirit. Here's Schaefer again. The how of the Christian life is the power of the crucified and risen Lord through the agency of the indwelling Spirit by faith, moment by moment. The old way of the Lord is, the old way of the law rather, is human, external, and powerless. In other words, it relies on, on me and my effort, obeying some law that's external to me, and it cannot bring lasting change. It's powerless. Whereas the new way of the Spirit, the new life of the Spirit, is divine. It's supernatural. It's God the Holy Spirit gives me his Spirit. It's internal. The law on the wall has become the law in my heart, and it's powerful. It can lead to lasting and real change. It's not a matter of just saying, let go and let God. Or as used to be said sometimes, don't wrestle, only nestle. That's terrible. In other words, just, just let God's life work through you, as if you don't actually have to do anything about it. Now, it is living moment by moment by faith, but it's an active faith. Where someone put it, a dependent striving. As Schaefer put it, an active passivity. In other words, I'm recognizing I can't do it. It's not about me on my own, but I need to actively live the life of faith. Imagine uh, you must have seen baseball, a big baseball bat. And someone's throwing the baseball, uh, the baseball at you, and you've got to hit with the baseball bat. A little kid might find the baseball bat much too strong and much too heavy for him. And so to teach the kid how to play baseball, you might put your hands over the little kid's hand to give it extra strength. And you want the kid to learn himself. So you're responding to what the kid is doing. As the kid takes the the bat back, you give an extra strength. And then you help the kid to hit the ball. You're not doing it all for him. You're not just making him hit it. You're responding to him, but giving him the strength to do what he couldn't do otherwise. There's a participation going on there. It's a bit like that with the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the promptings, but we must keep in step with the Spirit. And as we do, as we choose to live by faith, he gives us the strength to live in the light of it. And I will need to live by faith. You think of that costly struggle that's going on in your life at the moment. Bring to mind those areas of the Christian life that you find hard to live out. Maybe it's to keep your temper under control or your tongue under control. Or it's lust or greed or laziness. And those places where I'm tempted to sin in the way I think or what I do, I'm called to live by faith. Do you recognize, yes, God's way is the best way. Jesus Christ has died for me. I'm a new person in him. The Holy Spirit is in my heart. I don't have to do this anymore. And I say, Lord, please help me to say no to this sin and to do what's right. That's what it means to live 
by faith. I'm involved in it. I'm not just waiting for God to do it all for me, but nor am I depending on my strength. I don't have any. I'm saying, please help me. So the next bit of this talk is to think in more detail about what it means to live by faith, and then you're going to spend some time in the groups trying to apply this more and work it out in practice. And as we go through here, I want you to keep in mind those areas of struggle for you in the Christian life, what you're particularly conscious of at the moment, and try and apply these points to those areas of particular challenge. The old Puritans, the 17th century Puritans in England, used to talk about this uh, living by faith as involving basically two sides, meditation and mortification. Meditation dwelling consciously, focusing on the things of God and of Christ. And then mortification, putting to death what's sinful. Uh, Applying what's been meditated on by the Spirit into practical action in life. And you might say that all these points will really come under one of those two headings. So first, what does it mean to live by faith? Number one, think much of Christ. Sin takes root, and I become dry in my Christian walk when I cease to marvel at Christ. Perhaps you're not feeling spiritually fresh at the moment. Very likely we've ceased to marvel at Christ, who he is, what he's done for us. We've taken these things for granted. And when you're conscious that you're not going very well in the Christian life, Don't beat yourself up. All that does is make you feel more guilty, makes you feel more of a failure. Don't look within and say, oh, I'm so hopeless, I'm so hopeless. Don't look in, look up. Look to Christ. man who was struggling with sexual sin that had become an addiction, had really got a grip on him, said that he, he used to try and deal with this by willpower. And he made no progress. The real turning point came when this happened. He said, God made me realize that my choice was not simply between sinning and not sinning. It was between desiring Jesus who would satisfy or desiring something else which would not. And that's the reality. The sin is saying that it will satisfy us. But let's be honest, it never does, does it? It always demands more. It never satisfies. The choice was not simply between sinning and not sinning. It was between desiring Jesus who would satisfy or desiring something else which would not. The struggle, he said, did not become easy then. But it did become winnable. Because I realized that I had to choose not to walk away from something, but to walk towards someone. That makes all the difference. If I'm just thinking all the time, I've got negatively to walk away from something, and that's all, well, I've got to keep beating myself up. But I've not simply got to walk away from something. I need to walk towards someone. It's, it's the old thing of the, the child with the rusty knife. It's not just saying to the child, put it down, put it down, put it down. It's offering something much better in its place. I'm not just saying to the teenager, stop playing with those wretched games. But when the teenager finds the girl, suddenly the, the, the computer games are not interesting anymore. And with us, whatever our sins and our struggles are, 
when we look at Christ and find in him all that we could possibly dream of, those other sins will seem much less interesting. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian who worked in Oxford, said, bring your lust to the gospel. And by lust, he wasn't simply meaning sexual lust. He was talking about any wrong desire. He says, bring that wrong desire to the gospel. Richard Sibbs, again, a great Puritan of the 17th century, grace altereth or changes the relish. So I want to do something that's wrong, but an appreciation of the grace of God in Christ changes my desires. As I look at Christ, that will bring not only conviction of my sin, and you find that, don't you? The more you understand the wonderful love of God, the more wretched sin feels and seems. How could I do that? It's terrible. But it not only convicts, it also comforts. And we need both. We mustn't stop with the conviction. Sometimes we do need to be brought low by the gospel. And the remembrance that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins should make sin seem even more terrible. But don't end with conviction. Then receive the comfort of the gospel. God sent his son to die for every sin. And I'm sure there'll be some here who desperately need that comfort today. You come feeling guilty. And there's secret sins that you feel so ashamed of. And you might even think to yourself, well, I know God can deal with those some sins, but this sin, I keep on doing it. Or it's so terrible. The Bible can't mean that sin. Well, yes, it can. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies from all sins, says the Bible. Think much of Christ. Some of us are naturally introspective. And you spend a lot of time looking inwardly. And that's why, frankly, you're so miserable. Because there's not a lot of comfort inside. So you're forever worried about doubt. I don't believe enough. Well, the more you look at your faith, the more you realize it's imperfect, the more you realize that you are a doubter. If you're really struggling with doubt, don't spend your time looking at your doubt. Look at Christ. Or you look in, you think, I'm so sinful, I'm so sinful, I'm so sinful. And the more you look within, the more you realize how sinful you are, the more guilty you'll think you are. You are guilty. But don't spend your time looking in. Look at Christ, and then forgiveness will come flooding in. Someone once said, for every look within, take ten looks at him. And I've never thought that was quite enough. Think much of Christ. Second point is we try and think, what does it mean in practice to live by faith in the light of these glorious truths that we have been united to Christ and that we've been filled with the Spirit? Second, keep an open Bible. Because it's by the Word of God that the Spirit works on our hearts. Never divide the Word and the Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, says Paul in Ephesians 6. And the Word of God, Hebrews 4, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The two aspects to the heart. There's knowledge and understanding... And then there's affections or desires. And we need the Bible to work 
both on our understanding and our knowledge, but also on our desires and our affections. Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, said, aim not just to understand, but to feel and relish the truths of Scripture. So as I read the Bible, I shouldn't just be asking, what does this mean? That's an important question to ask. But it's not the only question to ask. I shouldn't simply ask, what does this mean? But also, how should I respond? And that response should begin in my heart. So how should this make me feel? Should this truth that I'm trying to understand mean that I love Christ more? Mean that I rejoice in hope? Mean that I'm horrified at sin? Mean that I have a reverent fear of God? What's it designed to do in me? Not enough simply to understand it. How should I feel? How should I respond? One writer said, desire is at the helm of our lives. We always do what we want to do. And the question at any given moment is, which desire is strongest? If my desire to please some idol is stronger than Christ at that moment, then I will sin. For that moment, it it feels more important to fit in with the crowd and please them. Or to make me, me feel comfortable about myself. Or to go for pleasure. If those things are more important to me than Christ, then those desires will win. And so I need to keep an open Bible. Because it's in the Bible that I see Christ, I see his ways. And I'm to delight in what I receive so that it's internalized. It's not just an intellectual understanding. Third, maintain a discipline of devotion. Some of you might think, hang on, that's that's very strange language. A discipline of devotion. For some people, discipline and devotion are opposites. How can you talk about a discipline of devotion? Well, I suspect people who ask that question who can't understand the discipline of devotion probably never been married. I've not been married. But those who are not married can have the impression that it must be marvellous. You just sort of fall in love and then you carry on loving each other and it's just straightforward and you just love each other for the rest of your life. But you know you married people that life gets very complicated. And life is very, very busy. And you can't just assume you're going to enjoy devotion. You sometimes, especially when kids come along, need the discipline of making sure that you make time for each other and listen to each other and delight in each other. It's a discipline of devotion. It's true for our relationship with Christ. Oh, we love him. But how easily the love grows cold if in the midst of a very busy life we're rushing from one thing to the next and we hardly think about him, not because we don't want to, but we just haven't organized our lives to give him priority. It's the same in a marriage. You want to enjoy your husband or your wife, but unless you organize your life around them so it becomes a priority to spend time with them, very often you'll find days go by and you've hardly actually spoken. No wonder the relationship begins to chill. Well, this is not a marriage seminar. 
But nonetheless, I guess a husband or a wife might need to, to nudge one another. And if you don't want to do it publicly, just have a word afterwards and say, look about that. Maybe, maybe we do need to spend more time. And what's true of human relationships, and it applies to friendships too, must also apply to our relationship with God. I suspect that most of us are very busy. And even if we're not particularly busy, other things crowd into our lives so easily. It's easy, isn't it, at the end of uh, a day to get home and just switch the television on. And then the rest of the day's gone. Get up in the morning, switch the radio on. Get up in the morning, first thing you do, check the email. The laugh tells me that's what most of you do. So from the moment you woke up in the morning, you're thinking, communicating with other people. What about communication with God? Sometimes we need the discipline to say, no, I'm not going to look at the email. I'm not going to switch on the internet until I've had time with God. To listen to him. To delight in him. To thank him. Thanksgiving is so important in the Christian life. And so much to thank him for. But how easy do we rush from thing, one thing to the next and we don't even notice the good things he's showering upon us. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord your God has done. It takes discipline. Next, four, be ruthless with sin. Romans 8 verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you remember the two kinds of people? There are those whose minds are set on the flesh, and there are those whose minds are set on the Spirit. These are not two different kinds of Christian. They're two different kinds of people, non-Christians and Christians. And the Christian is the one who's had a new nature. The Holy Spirit is in them, and we've got new desires. And that must lead to two different ways of life. One which leads to death, and the other which leads to life. And the Christian life involves putting to death the deeds of the body. Not saying that bodily things are bad of themselves. He's talking about fleshly things, sinful things. There's a kind of life that leads to death. And there's a kind of death that leads to life. The kind of life that leads to death is a life that's turned on in in itself and has no time for God and Jesus Christ. It's It's the kind of life that flows from a mind that's focused on sinful nature, the flesh. But there's a kind of death that leads to life. And that's the Christian life which involves self-denial. It means saying no to the things of the flesh, no to the things that are anti-God. And that is painful. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Again, it's by the Spirit. I can't do it myself. But with the help of God, by the Holy Spirit, I'm living by faith. I'm saying, please help me to say no to this. Sin is not a friend to indulge, but an enemy to kill. We're to wage war against it. 
would have put it to death. Too many of us, I think, have been pruning sin. There's a difference. Pruning just means snipping off the edges. Perhaps being aware it's been getting out of control a little bit. It's become a bit too obvious to other people. And that's embarrassing because we're known as Christians. So we need to prune it so that we save our external reputation. Or perhaps it's getting a bit inconvenient because it's beginning to take control of our lives in ways that we're finding unhelpful. So we prune it. We try and just snip it at the edges. And the Bible's saying, don't just prune it. Root it out. Completely get rid of it. Dig it down to the roots and then put it on the bonfire. That takes radical action. Some of us, our Christian lives are feeling a bit dry because that's all we've been doing. We've been pruning sin. We've not been killing it. And maybe the the take-home message for some here is to kill it. What would that look like in practice for you? Think of one friend who was really struggling with greed and She'd read any magazine, she'd see the, the, the beautiful clothes, and she'd think, I've got to have that. And it dominated the way she was thinking. And then when she went shopping, she found it very hard to resist. And her mind was focused on getting things in this life rather than on God. And she knew that had to change. So one of the things she did was to determine to stop getting those magazines. Other people could read the magazines and enjoy them and look at the beautiful dresses, and that's fine. But she found that for herself, when she looked at them, she needed them. And so she needed to take the the radical action of saying, I'm not going to ever read one of those magazines again. Think of someone else who was in a job where the culture was telling lies. The customers were told things that were not true routinely. And he found that although he was a Christian, he knew this was wrong, he found it very, very hard to resist the culture. He could have done. It might have been costly for him. But he found it almost impossible. So in the end, he thought, I've got to change my job. And he started looking around. He found another job. Now, another Christian in that situation might have been able to say no, but he felt, I can't. And so he took the radical action. It's not just about getting rid of the external deed. It's also about dealing with the root motive. So we're back to the idol question. What are my pet idols? Where do I look to if it's not God for security and satisfaction? Very often, my idols drive my sins. Once I recognize what they are, I'll have a better chance of fighting those sins. Tim Keller, the American preacher, was reflecting on the fact that you get to know your wife very well. A couple gets to know each other extremely well in a relationship. And he spotted that over the years, both of them would occasionally lie. All of us, sadly, will sometimes say things that are not true or not completely true. And he said over the, the time, they discovered as they talked about it, him and Kathy, with themselves, that they lied in different circumstances for different reasons because they had different idols. So he noticed that where Kathy was tempted to lie, it was to avoid being inconvenienced. Because her chief idol is the idol of control. She wants to be in control of her life. And when that's threatened, then she's 
tempted to lie so she can keep control of her life. Whereas Tim is tempted to lie so as to not upset other people. Because his chief idol is popularity. He wants people to like him. And therefore he's tempted to change what he says to people might end up liking him more. It's worth thinking, what, what are my idols? Because that will help us get deep down to the roots of our sins. Fifth, make the most of other Christians. We need each other. When you read through the Bible, you'll find again and again these one another verses. Teach one another. Confess your sins to one another. Encourage one another. The Christian life is never an individual effort. Those New Testament letters are written to communities of Christians. Spiritual growth is a corporate effort. We grow together as the body grows more and more into the likeness of Christ as we teach and admonish one another and encourage one another and love one another in the Christian life. So as you think about your Christian life, it's worth asking, are there others who are involved in my Christian life? Are we being sufficiently open with one another? Is there a culture in our small group Bible study, in our church as a whole, which makes it possible to acknowledge that we're struggling I think one of the things that really makes it much harder in the Christian life is a culture which gives the impression that we're completely sorted. And then an individual comes to church and thinks, well, actually, I'm finding the Christian life really hard. I'm struggling. But I don't want to admit that because everyone else seems perfect. And if I admit that I'm not perfect, maybe they'll cast me out of their group. And so we hide behind our masks And the result is that we're never really applying the word of God to the real situations of our lives because we've got to be seen to be in control and sorted. Maybe there's certain sins it's okay to admit to, but others that we'd never admit to because we'd lose face, be shameful. And again, there are whole areas of our lives that we're not being able to help one another in. When you fall into sin, what you need is the gospel. And very often you're the worst person to apply it to yourself. I know that when I sin, I feel so guilty. It feels almost um, ungodly just to apply the gospel to myself. I should be just hitting myself and making myself feel bad. And what I need is someone else to say, God loves you. God sent his son to die for you. God has forgiven you. But how can they do that if I... Don't let on that I feel guilty. Maybe I've been caught in a sin. It's begun to drag me down. And I need brothers and sisters who will walk with me and pray for me and keep pointing me to Christ. I can't always do it myself. But how's that going to happen if I don't acknowledge to others that this is what's going on? Make the most of other Christians. Let's be more open in appropriate ways. And other people we can be open with, talk with, pray with. And and by and large, if you're worried about that, you'd be surprised. But it's easy to think, and some of you probably are thinking, I'm the only one who thinks these kind of things. No one else could possibly be as sinful as I am thinking like that and doing those things. But the reality is, dare I say it, the person 
sitting next to you is just as sinful as you are. I've not met most of you before. But I know an awful lot about you. Some of you are looking worried at this point. (laughs) I know a lot about you because my Bible tells me about you. My Bible tells me that you're just as sinful as I am. But God is so gracious. And he forgives us and strengthens us and changes us. And very often when you open up to someone and say, look, this is what I find difficult in the Christian life, and you're worried they're going to drive you away. Well, either they'll say, well, actually, that's a struggle for me as well. Or they'll say, well, that's not my particular battle, but let me tell you where I'm struggling. And then you find there's much deeper friendship and openness and mutual support and encouragement. Make the most of other Christians. And then finally, pray often. Francis Schaeffer asked once, if all the references to prayer and the Holy Spirit were taken out of the Bible, what difference would it make in practice to your life? And the sad suggestion he had was that very often it wouldn't make much difference at all. Because we're not living as if the Christian life is a supernatural life. But I say again, this process of becoming more like Jesus, sanctification, is not my work. And that's the danger of this list. Think much of Christ, keep an open Bible, maintain a discipline of devotion, be ruthless with sin, make the most of other Christians, pray often. As you go away thinking, oh, here's all the things I've got to do. But ultimately it's God's work. It should never be reduced to a set of duties and outward actions. Here are some of the things that we can do to play our part in this dependent striving, in this living by faith, but ultimately it depends on God. And at the heart of it all must be prayer. So I turn what I'm reading in the Bible into prayer. Maybe at the end of this morning, you might try and take time at some stage this weekend to write out a prayer that sums up what you want to thank God for and what you want to ask for help for, for you personally. That, I think, might help you to encapsulate what you're learning so it doesn't just stay in the head, but then is turned into prayer. And you keep praying it every day this week. Thank you, Lord, for that amazing truth that you've given us not just a new status, but a new life. And that the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts the moment we put our trust in Jesus. Thank you that because of that, it is possible for us to change. Now, please, loving Father, help me to live in the light of who I am in Christ. Help me to live by faith. Help me to have that discipline in my devotion for you. I'm longing, Father, to put more time aside. Please help me to get up earlier, or whatever it might be. And then pray it. And do it moment by moment. That's the Christian life. Constantly I'm facing decisions in life. Will I do what's wrong? Will I think what's wrong? Will I do what's right? Will I think what's right? And living the Christian life is living moment by moment by faith in the Son of God who died for me and rose again and sent his Spirit to live in me. Father, help me to do the right thing moment by moment. Well, these are big themes. At the heart of them is that choice. Romans 7 verse 6, of either going the old way of the written code or the new life, the new way of the Spirit. I hope that's given you enough to think through in the groups. I don't think you'll have time to cover all of these different headings. It's up to you where you go. 
but it's worth spending a bit of time thinking about these different areas. And remember where they flow from. Don't forget the truths that undergird all of them, that we're united to Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in us. Spend some time thinking these things through.